Well, before we uh, get right into our lesson on starting Revelation 6, um, kind of just want to do a quick review of where we've been the last couple of weeks, which kind of set the stage for considering the seals and then the trumpets and then the vials or the bowls in, in Revelation 6 through 16. Uh, but I think there's five key things that will help us as we go through, especially the seals. Um, some of these will apply to the trumpets and the bowls as well, but especially to the seals. Uh, the first thing we need to remember as we approach the seals in Revelation 6 is that the opening up of the seals is what will lead to the opening of the scroll itself. Uh, they're not part of the contents in the scroll. They refer to the contents on the scroll. And so the, the whole point is to be able to open up the scroll, to read the scroll, to find out what's in the scroll. And this is all preparatory or even preliminary to the opening of the scroll. And that's something that will help us as we move forward in understanding what these seven seals are all about. Uh, so they are... They can be considered preliminary and preparatory. The second thing, we're going to go through this fairly quickly because this is just kind of groundwork that we've already laid. Uh, we're going to look at the seals as John saw them, uh, which means um, one of the probably the best approaches of considering the seals, trumpets, and bowls is this telescopic approach. And it sees the seals, all seven seals, as the first segment, you know, kind of like that, that spyglass, if you will, and they're all kind of pushed together. And so he's seen... Um, all of these seals as the first segment or the first stage that will ultimately lead up to, from John's perspective, what is the coming of Christ to the sound of that great trumpet. And we kind of uh, looked at that a little bit last Sunday, that this is something that John would have been anticipating, uh, even as what Jesus told in Matthew 24 and the other Gospels, the Olivet Discourse, and even what Paul had taught in that time as well. And so we're going to see this telescope uh, the first stage of it, and then it's going to be expanded into the trumpets and then even expanded some more into, into the vials. And so that's our goal, is to try to see these things as John saw them from the Lord uh, to get us in his shoes and to understand more of what they mean. So that's the, the second key thing, uh, using this telescopic approach. The third is as we look at the details of the seals, uh, and this again applies to all of the details in Revelation as a whole, even a lot of the details that we've already looked at, uh, we need to remember that just as the spiritual reality of invisible things, that's not on your guide, by the way, it's visible, um, the spiritual reality of invisible things in heaven are described in physical ways. That's similar, and that's true also of visible things on earth. Now, um, Ron and I were talking a little bit um, last week, and I do believe, as he does, that there are visible things in heaven. <laughs> Not everything in heaven is going to be invisible or currently is invisible. Obviously, Jesus himself is visible. Uh, he has a body, a glorified body up in heaven as well. Um, but there are invisible things in heaven. And especially when we look at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 and the, the angelic beings, as well as the living ones, the living beasts that are around the throne especially, obviously there's some deb debate about the 24 elders, whether they are angelic beings or human beings. If they're angelic beings, obviously they would be normally invisible. Uh, if they're human beings, they too would have a physical glorified body as well. Um, but there are invisible things in heaven. And a lot of the things that we saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5 dealt with those invisible things. And the reality, the spiritual reality of those things are described to John and to us in visible ways. Because we're creatures that live on earth. We're creatures that are familiar with things that we see and things that we feel, things that we sense. And so a lot of those truths are portrayed for us in that way so we can understand them. Uh, this is no different than what, the way Jesus taught. 
He taught us spiritual truths in natural ways. Uh, think about the parables. There's a lot of natural parables that are out there, you know, about the sower going out to sow his seed. And, and he's talking about spiritual growth, spiritual truth. And so there's a lot of spiritual truth that deals with invisible things described in physical and natural ways. Well, in much the same way, there is that spiritual reality to the visible things on the earth. And so not everything that is given to us in the seals and the trumpets and the, vision and the bowls, um, even though there might be a literal counterpoint or a physical counterpoint to it, there's also a spiritual reality that is meant to be discerned. And uh, that means that when John was seeing this, these things, there was often more than meets the eye. It wasn't just a, a picture, a movie theater screen of what was going to take place. There were a lot of symbols and signs to help him understand what really is going on in this world. And we know that as Christians, right? We know that there is a, a spiritual reality taking place even in this visible world. Uh, Paul talks about how you know, we wrestle not against um, flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. He's talking about the, the spiritual behind the visible. And one of the ways to look for these more than meets the eye type of things is to look for them in the frequent use of the words of comparison. Uh, this, this entire book of Revelation is filled with likes or as. I saw this like or I saw this as. And so when you see that like or that as, even though they're very small words, those small words can lead you to deep meaning behind the visible things taking place here on earth. And so you've got to kind of take a step back and you've got to think, well, why is he seeing this in this way? Why is he describing this visible reality in this way? And usually there's a spiritual underlying meaning, symbolic meaning for it as well. Uh, we're going we're gonna to note that as we go through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. The fourth key thing, when we come especially to the first four seals, uh, which we will introduce today and then we'll hopefully uh, get into the rest of them next week. These all involve different colored horses. Uh, we looked at those colors at the very end of last, last week's lesson. Different colored horses and their riders. And because of what we found in the book of Zechariah, which is the background for these four horses and their colors, it, again, John is not seeing what Zechariah saw. Uh, it's not an equivalency, but it's a background. And so there's a lot of similar principles that we can learn from Zechariah's vision and apply it to John's vision. And that was intentional. Uh, much of what Jesus shows to John is intentionally given to us in biblical language, using biblical background, looking back at biblical stories and all of these things. Um, but especially in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we find four kinds of horses. And uh, those actual horses were pulling chariots, um, probably with some horsemen, even though we're not described that way. But what we find in Zechariah shows us that the four horses and the four horsemen in Revelation are related to each other. They're even interconnected in some ways. So they work together to accomplish a common purpose through their common presence. Uh, one of the key phrases that you find in Zechariah over and over and over again is that these four horses back in Zechariah, were to run to and fro throughout the earth. And so once they were there, they were to, you know, patrol the earth, and, 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 and they were God's use of judgment upon the earth for those that were oppressing his people. 
And so we can take that background here in Revelation and see the same thing. These horses and their horsemen are working together to accomplish their common purpose through their common presence as they go to and fro throughout the earth, just like their counterparts in Zechariah. Um, there's obviously probably more to that parallel, um, that similarity, but I think those are the basis, their common purpose and their common presence. Uh, but then the fifth key, um, and this is what we're going to be looking at every time, is no matter what uh, structure I give it or what structure you might give it or some theologian might give it, we all always need to keep in mind the literary arrangement of the seven seals. The literary arrangement of the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Uh, we must always make our scheme of whatever it is to, to fit the scripture rather than the scripture fit our scheme. And so that's, I think, important for us to remember. So what is the literary arrangement of the seven seals? Well, if you remember, chapter 6 that we're going to start today, all six seals are found and opened up in chapter 6. And they're all opened up by who? Who opens them? The Lamb, Jesus Christ, right? The Son of God, absolutely. But then chapter 7 comes around, and there's an interlude. All right, so this is a close-up. And this close-up not only looks back to the first uh, chapter 6, it also is going to tie forward and look forward uh, even beyond the sixth seal. So after that seventh chapter, it then leads to the opening of that seventh seal in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. So that we can look at as the first stage, the first segment of what John sees in this vision of the scroll being opened up. Uh, the first six seals in chapter 6, interlude chapter 7, seventh seal opened up, chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. So those are the five keys. Hopefully, as we keep these things in mind, uh, what we discover from these seven seals will make even more sense to us uh, because I think that's one of the reasons why God wanted this to be given to John is so that he can make sense of it and especially in light of all the things that was going around in his life and his circumstances and especially what was going on in the churches, those seven churches in Asia as well. So why don't we read once again uh, the opening, and we're just going to focus here on the first four seals today. Uh, last Sunday we looked at the entirety of that segment. Uh, but today we're just going to read verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 6. So John, of course, this is right after the heavenly vision in chapters 4 and 5. And he's still in, remember, he's still in heaven. This is all flowing from heaven. And he says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. And, of course, that connects us back to the throne of God, where there's thunder as well. And from this noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, the living ones, saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast or living one say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living one say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil 
and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living one say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with, the, and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And though those are four seals, and remember, these are all related. They're connected. They're interrelated as well. So the first thing that we come to, and, and really we're just going to look at the first seal and the first horse, the white horse, as well as his rider today, um, because this is probably the one that most, you know, most commentaries, most people kind of struggle with most. Uh, the other ones are more straightforward, is the term that I've, that I've seen before. Uh, the very first thing that we see there in verse 1, and by the way, this is what we need to remember, no matter what seal we're looking at, no matter uh, what trumpet we're looking at, no matter what bowl we're looking at, and that is the control of the seals. Who's in control of all of these seals, all of these trumpets, and all of these bowls? The Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. He's in control. So no matter what we find here, God is ultimately in control. Remember, these are flowing out of the scene of the throne room in heaven. So when John says here in verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, he's still in the regions of heaven, and then he first tells us about what he saw. About what he saw. Again, after the scene of glorious worship that is all centered around God the Father who's sitting there on the throne, as well as the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who's standing right next to the throne, the one who was found worthy to open the scroll starts to do just that. He starts to open the scrolls. And here it says he opens one of the seals. Now it's very interesting because he, it, it doesn't say that he opens the first seal. All right? um, it does say in the other ones, the second, third, fourth, you know, and, and on. Um, so obviously this seal will be the first seal. So we're not exactly sure as to the precise order in which these seals were opened. You know, I, I mentioned that a lot of the, those older Roman uh, scrolls would have, might have had seven seals right down the side. And so, you know, we immediately think, well, if he's going to remove the second, third, all the way down to the seventh seal, the first one must be the top one. Um, or maybe they did it backwards. Maybe the first one was the bottom one. And, but it doesn't say that. It says he opened one of the seals. It could have been the middle one. It could have been somewhere, any, any one of those at all. And so whatever the second one would be, would be the second one. We're just not sure exactly what order they would have been taken off in the scroll. Um, it really doesn't make a lot of difference to us, uh, but it's kind of just interesting to note that. We really don't know the precise order in which the seals were opened based on how they were put on the scroll. Uh, it may have been from top to bottom or not. So this is what he sees. All right, the lamb is opening one of the seals. But then, as is often the case in Revelation, we've noted this already, he connects what he saw with what he heard. We notice this a few times, right? Uh, in fact, in the throne room of heaven, uh, he hears first that there's a lion there. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he looks, and what does he see? Or who does he see? The lamb. So sometimes what he sees and what he hears don't always correspond. Um, other times they do correspond. Now, whether they correspond or not, when he sees something and hears something, it's for us to take notice as well. So what does he hear? This time it does correspond. He says, I heard, verse 1, as it were, remember that key word, as? So this is a, a symbolic representation here. 
I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. He didn't hear thunder. Okay? He heard, as it were, the voice or the sound of thunder. It's kind of like the noise when you heard Jesus speaking. It was like thunder. So this is another thunderous voice. Um, very strong, very striking, very powerful. It wasn't thunder, but it might have been something like thunder. It was that abrupt. So this is a noise, a voice of, of thunder. So there's something powerful to get John's attention and ours. After all, since this is the opening of what we'll call the first seal, uh, even though it was one of the seals, it's still for us the first seal, John did not know what to expect. Because in John's history, you know, if maybe he got some scrolls from some of the churches in Asia, and they, they had seals, and maybe some of those, maybe they had multiple seals. What's the whole point of those seals? Yeah, to seal it up. And so the, real, the, the really big thing, the important thing, is to open up the scroll and see what's on it. So, you know, he would probably be under the perspective, Jesus, the lamb, is just going to open, pop off all those seven seals, start unrolling it, but that's not what happens. He pops off that first one, opens up that first seal, and then something happens. This is entirely different than any other scroll that has ever been opened up before John, before this time. So again, he was probably thinking that all seven of these seals would have been opened up one right after the other so that he could actually hear and see what was written on the scroll, but that's not the case. And so with a thunderous voice, John hears, again, one of the four living ones, one of the four beasts. And just like the, the, the seal, the first seal, we're not expressly told here which living one he hears. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we would think maybe it was the first one that we find in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, if you remember, we, we looked at all four of those. And so, you know, we would think, well, the, the first seal, after that was broken, maybe the, the, the lion-like beast spoke. And then maybe the, the calf-like beast spoke second. And then the, the, the beast that had a face of a man spoke third. Again, we're not totally given the order here. So he says, again, one of the living ones. It may have been, and there might be a correspondence between what the living one is like and what happens with a scroll. We just can't be certain of that. Um, but whatever one it was, whatever the living one was, um, this particular one spoke. And of course, this living one also functions as a representative of God's creation before the throne. So God is using these living ones, these beasts, to exercise his control over the world. And in some way, they represent the world that God created to him. So this living one, again, not sure which one, uh, utters a command. Now, in the King James, or the New King James, we actually have two commands. Uh, as I read, come and see. Uh, in this way, those two commands would be directed to John. Um, kind of to basically tell him to come a little bit closer and behold what I'm about to show you. Um, these two commands are based on the, what we can describe as the received or majority Greek texts. And again, this would call John to a closer look at what was about to have it happen in heaven after the seal was opened. And, and certainly that makes sense. Uh, I mean, that's really the focus. God wants John to see more of what is going to take place, not just in heaven, but also in earth. Uh, again, at this point, he didn't know that something was going to happen after the first seal was broken. Um, this is a surprise to him. And so it would be appropriate for this living one to say to John, come a little closer and see what's going to happen. However, uh, if you have a more modern translation, whether it's the ESV, NIV, or others, 
um, they have just one command. And so instead of saying, seeing come and see, you're going to just find the word come. And in that word, it would not be directed to John. It would be the living one directing his words to the horse and its rider uh, to, to come out of wherever they are. We're not told where they're at somewhere in heaven and to actually start going to and fro in the earth. Uh, this is based on what is known as the critical Greek text. Uh, these are the manuscripts that consider the oldest Greek manuscript copies that we have of Revelation. Um, even though they're fewer in number than the other ones, they would consider them to be closer than the original. Um, so, you know, if you have an older text, um, older Greek text, you're going to find most of these having just that one command. So um, I personally, I'm more of a majority text or received text guy. I think he is being directed to come a little closer and see. Um, but either way, um, we know that there is some direction of, from heaven of what's going to actually go on earth. Um, either way, the control of this scene is clear. And that's really the whole point. These commands are issued by God's representative to either John or to the horsemen to come and do what is being directed by the Lord. So God is completely in control. And that is our hope. Um, actually, Brother Ed, um, I, we usually, he usually picks most of the songs for Sunday morning, Sunday evening. I usually pick the last one after the message. Um, but as I went on the, the, the spreadsheet that we, we look at, I noticed and we made a comment about that earlier. I noticed that he didn't put a song down for Sunday school. He usually does. Um, but he did not. And so I was thinking, okay, what would be a good, good song um, to start off our, our Sunday school with? And I picked it as well. Because that is the truth of those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is the truth of our hearts. No matter what is going on in this world. No matter what negative thing we see in this world. It really is well with our soul, right? Because who's in control? <laughs> God's in control of all seals, all trumpets, all bowls, all circumstances in our life. God is in control, and that is clear. So, the pattern that John lays out here, when this first seal is opened, you know, he sees and he hears. He sees a seal being broken, and he hears one of the living ones. Again, not sure which order, we're not sure which one. He hears the living one say, either to John, come and see, or to the horse and rider, come. And that's repeated three more times. Uh, we find it for the second seal in verse 3. Uh, we find it for the third seal in verse 5. And we find it in the fourth seal in verse 7. So um, though we're belaboring some of these points today, as we look at the first seal, we're going to just breeze through them in the second, third, and fourth seal uh, because we've already looked at them today. So John sees the lamb open one of the seals. John hears one of the living ones issue an order. And then John describes something else that he sees. And that leads us there to verse 2. What else does John see and I saw? This leads us to the very content of the seals. The very content of the seals. So when the first seal is opened, what does John see? And behold, a white horse. That's the title of this lesson. Behold, a white horse. But it's not just the horse. There's someone sitting on that horse. And he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. So obviously there's some real biblical background about the horse that's important for our understanding of these seals. But the focus is not just on the horse, it's also on this rider. Now this is clearly one of those times when the invisible and spiritual reality of things on earth is pictured in a visible and natural way. We don't see 
and they won't see, you know, like a headless horseman riding around, you know, wreaking havoc wherever he goes. But this is a spiritual reality that is underlying the visible things that are taking place on earth. There might be a spiritual horse with a spiritual rider riding through to and fro on this earth that we just won't be able to see. But there is one, and certainly that is a spiritual reality. And so that's what we're going to uncover. We're going to try to uncover what the spiritual reality is. And of course, as we saw last Sunday, much of what we find here is given to John in biblical terms, even from Zechariah. So what is the first thing he describes? The horse. And what's its color? It's white. This color, the color of white, is frequently found in the book of Revelation. It's found 14 times all throughout the book of Revelation. And note this, in every other place, it is associated with God and his people. So when you come to the book of Revelation, you see that word white, that color white. Unless this is an exception, in every other place, it is associated with God and his people. Uh, Just a, a quick review. In chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus' head and hair were white like wool. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 17, there was a promise made to the overcomers in the church of Pergamos that they would receive a, a stone that was white in color. In several places, uh, starting in, in chapter 6, verse 11, the robes of saints are described in what color? White. Uh, you don't need to turn to all these, but in chapter 14, verse 14, Jesus, or John sees Jesus returning on what color cloud? You know, a white cloud. Uh, um, And then in chapter 20, verse 11, John sees a throne, a great throne, a great white throne. And you could go on. You could look at every one of those 14 times. As a rule, white in Revelation describes the glory and the purity of God and his people. And so that's kind of the symbolic idea of this color white. Um, Even in addition to this, in chapter 19, verse 14... Jesus or John sees Jesus and all the armies of heaven riding horses. And what color are those horses? They're white horses. That's right. And this is, of course, referring to his final return on earth. So it seems, at first glance, this white horse should be seen in the same way unless it is an exception to the rule of what we find in the rest of the book of Revelation. So that's the horse. But then John sees the horsemen. Now, we're not told anything about the appearance of this horseman. We're not told, you know, what color his face is or, you know, anything about what he's wearing. Um, But he does have, um, excuse me, he does give us the appearance of his possessions and his purpose. He gives us some of the things that he has and what he is going to do. So the first thing that he notices is his possessions. And he has a bow, a bow. Now, you know, we're familiar with what a bow is. It's not a compound bow. You know, it would have been probably a long bow or, or um, there's a lot of people that would look at this and, and consider who were the great enemies of Rome during this time. Um, they were known as the Parthians. They were sort of out in Persia and they were known for, for being very lethal with their bows and arrows. And so a lot of them would think that this is a Parthian bow that is being pictured here. Um, But this is the only place in the book of Revelation where you find a bow. Also, this is the only place in the New Testament 
where a bow is found. In fact, the Greek word is toxon, the only place in the entire New Testament where you'll find this, this weapon of war. However, um, so you can't really look for, you know, what's the symbolic reference of the bow in Revelation or the New Testament, because you don't find it anywhere else in Revelation or the New Testament. So you've got to go back to the Old Testament. And again, there's a lot of Old Testament background for things in the Revelation. But in the, in the Old Testament, bows are found everywhere. <laughs> um, in fact, you can just type in bow in, you know, a, a computer a Bible or whatever. And I, I pulled up 77 times, and I'm sure there's probably more than that. Because I just typed in bow asterisk, and there might be other <laughs> ways of describing that. Um, the, the Hebrew word is kesheth, and it's usually an instrument of war. In fact, many times that bow is symbolic to describe God's victory in this world. Just one case, Psalm 7, verses 11 through 12. It says, God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will whet his sword, and he hath bent his bow and made ready. I mean, if you're going to shoot an arrow, you're going to have to bend that bow and get going, right? And so that's the picture here. And a lot of times, God's judgment and God's victory is portrayed in the picture of a bow. However, the very first place where a bow is found in the Old Testament, it is not used as a symbol of war. It's actually used as a symbol of peace. You don't need to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, this is taking place after the flood. God says to Noah and his family, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for me a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Isn't it interesting that the very first time that a bow is mentioned in the Old Testament, you know, as far as historical goes, uh, maybe Job um, would be an exception to this. But the very first time we find it in the beginnings here in Genesis chapter 9, it's the rainbow. It is not a symbol of war. It's a symbol of mercy and peace. There's no arrows in the rainbow. Praise God for that, right? Usually the, the rainbow comes after the, the arrows of lightning coming down from heaven. So it was a symbol of peace. But here what we have in, in chapter 6 of, of Revelation verse 2 the first and only use of a bow in the New Testament. The question is, could it be the same, used in the same way as the first time it's mentioned in the Old Testament? It's possible. This might be the way to see it, uh, since after all, no arrows are described here in verse 2. They must be assumed or implied. They're not mentioned. Also, there's no mention of how this writer is carrying the bow. It doesn't say that he has it bent, ready to shoot arrows, it doesn't even say that he has it in his hand. You know, it could even be placed on his back or on his horse. We're not told. Um, so we have to look for other things. What kind of bow is this? What kind of bow is this man carrying? We'll move on. Uh, the next possession that he has, uh, besides a bow, is what? A crown. That's right. Now, the way it's given to us here in verse 2 is that he had a bow... And a crown was given unto him. Now, John may have seen this transfer of crown, or maybe this is just implied, you know, that it was given to him. Um, this phrase, was given, uh, the, it's the Greek word for give, didomi, but it's in the passive. 
This is something that you're going to find all throughout the book of Revelation. It's called the divine passive. Because even though we're told that someone was given something, we're not told exactly who gave it to them, right? It's like, you know, if, if Angie gave me my supper last night, right? Well, obviously that's active. She gave me my supper. But if it's a passive, I was given my supper, you could either say, by Angie, my wife, because she did it, or you could just leave it open, and then you wouldn't know who it was. <laughs> so this is kind of just a, a, a silent way to show, once again, God's control over the whole situation. A crown was given to him. He didn't take the crown. He received the crown because someone else gave it to him, and we know who that someone is. It's implied, it's assumed that it is the Lord. And we're going to find this divine passive several places all throughout the book of Revelation. Um, even in places where God doesn't seem to be in the picture, this divine passive reveals that he is and remains active and in full control. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's kind of like the book of Esther, right? You don't find God anywhere in the book of Esther. But where is God in Esther? everywhere. He's everywhere. And so it is with these divine passives. Uh, these are also described as sovereign passives, kind of the same thing, sovereign passives. Um, one writer says, it is a way to express divine permission granted to evil forces or evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. And so again, this divine permission, God's in control, this sovereign passive, this divine passive, God is in control. Of course, the crown that he was given, a crown is often a symbol of authority and honor. Uh, but this kind of crown, I put there on your uh, lesson guide, is the Stephanus crown, or the, um, the kind of crown that someone would receive if they were um, in the Olympic Games, and they came out ahead, and they came out victorious, and this was the reward, the award that was given to them for winning. It was a Stephanus kind of crown. There's a, another kind of crown of a ruler, of a king or a queen, and that's the, the diadem, if you will, the diadema type of crown. This is a Stephanos, which is how I was named, uh, Stephen. You know, I, I, for growing up, I was always curious, what does my name mean? Why did my parents name me that? And it means crowned one. And I'm pretty sure that that was not the reason why uh, they named me that. I think it was just because of the Stephen in the Bible. Um, but I kind of thought, okay, God has something for me, right? <laughs> Maybe, you know, I'm going to, you know, be in some higher upper echelon of government and, and have some kind of, you know, authority and power in that sense. Obviously, God had, God had other plans for me, thank goodness. Uh, but these were often given as a prize for victory, uh, just like those wreaths and garlands given to those who won the ancient Olympic Games. They were actually wreaths of, of olive branches. Now, I don't know about you, but I like... The modern-day Olympics, where if you win, you get a gold medal. Now, granted, it's gold-plated silver. But still, if you do all that work and you go through all that effort, and all you get is just a wreath of olive branches around your head, I'm not sure I'd want to do that. Of course, did you notice when the last time they had it in Athens, they did that? They gave them the, the, wreath, um, the wreath, but they also gave them the gold medal, because I wouldn't want to do it for that either. Um, so as one writer says, this was often given as a badge of victory in the games of civic worth or military valor. So it wasn't just in the Olympic Games. It was also if you were a general coming in, having victory, uh, you'd get this sort of as a reward. Um, it was also used of nuptial joy. So it was a wedding 
symbol as well, um, or even festive gladness. So this Stephanus was used in a wide range of things. But it seems like this crown, this Stephanus, is given to this, uh, this writer as some kind of award or something like that, um, either for fulfilling his purpose or what he would do in triumph or victory. Because again, he's doing what God wants him to do. He's doing what the Lamb permits him to do. Um, do we find this crown elsewhere in Revelation? Uh, we do. We find it seven more times. And with only one exception, is it related to, again, God and his people. Um, in fact, in chapter 14, verse 14, we have this Stephanus on the head of Jesus. Okay? Um, the people are given those crowns. In chapter 2, verse 10, there's a crown of life. Uh, the elders are given crowns in chapter 4, verse 4, and then they what, do what with those crowns? They throw them down at Jesus' feet. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, there's a woman who represents God's people. She also is wearing a crown. So out of all of the times in Revelation where you find a crown, there's one exception that does not relate to God and his people, and that is, um, it'll be in, later on in chapter 9, when we look at the trumpets, the fifth trumpet, there are these creatures, these locusts, and they have on their heads something like a crown. Uh, again, it has that word of comparison. It has the, something like a crown on their head. Um, so again, uh, this, it really seems like there's a positive sense of what this crown might be. Uh, these were the possessions of the writer. But then, John also, there in verse 2, tells us about his purpose. Uh, what is his purpose in verse 2? He went forth conquering and to conquer. So if the command of the living one is to the beast and his rider, they comply with that order, and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Conquering here is in the present tense, so he is kind of doing that in an ongoing way, and to conquer is sort of a, a future thrust. So it's his mission, it's his ongoing mission of conquest in this world. So he goes forth, and likely the picture is that wherever he was at in the heavenly regions, again, we're not told about this, he was coming and he is coming to earth. And we know this because of what we read in Zechariah, to go to and fro throughout the earth. Um, and John sees this writer conquering. Now that word translated conquer, we've seen already in the book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, the Greek word is nikao, from which we get our brand Nike, <laughs> and it means to conquer. Uh, it's found 15 times in the book of Revelation. Eight of those times we actually found already in the book of Revelation. Uh, if you remember the seven messages to the seven churches, every single message ended the same way. To him who overcomes, I will give. Same word. The one who is overcoming, the one who is conquering, the one who is conquesting, the one who is overcoming in these ways, I will give a promise of an inheritance. Um, so we found that seven or eight times. Um, in chapter 5, verse 5, you could actually go there just since we're close to it. We find it again referring to the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the lamb of the tribe of Judah, and it says that he prevailed to open the book. That's the same word, to conquer or to conquest, to overcome. He prevailed to open the book or the scroll. So even though that word is translated three different ways, it's the same word with that same idea of conquest in some way. Um, in the six more times that this word is found in Revelation, only two of those times it is clearly referring to some victory over God's people. 
And that is the victory of the beast over God's people. You find that in chapter 11, verse 7, chapter 13, verse 7. But out of every other time, uh, two out of 15 are against God's people. All the rest are related to the Lord and his people who still overcome and conquer the beast. So that's just kind of an interesting thing. Again, showing this, uh, again, kind of a positive spin on who this first writer might be. We're not given any details about the conquering of this writer. Uh, we're not told who he conquers. Uh, we're not told where he conquers, though we can assume it's earth. Uh, we're not even told really why, except we know that he was ordered to. I mean, God is telling him to do this. Uh, we can assume why because of the background from Zechariah. It's for judgment. Whatever his mission is, he's successful in it. He's conquering, not um, trying to conquer. He is conquering, and yet he still has more to accomplish. He has more to conquer. He's conquering and to conquer. So it's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing mission of conquest. All right, so that's what we find in the first seal. Now, what are we to make of this first horseman riding on this white horse? At first glance, everything appears to be positive about him, right? even sometimes associated with God as people. He's riding on a white horse, which is associated with God as people. He has a bow with no arrows. He's given a crown of honor in some way. And it's all for the purpose of bringing people into submission, conquering. So there are some who've looked at this as a positive or in a positive way yeah. and has concluded that this rider must refer to the ongoing mission of God to bring the gospel to this world, to bring people into submission to God with a peaceful bow of the gospel, even in the most difficult and trying times that we are in or are to come in in this world. And so that's what we can call the positive approach to this first horse and horseman. Uh, there are some who think that Jesus is the rider himself, but I don't think that that is a good way of looking at it because you know, Jesus is actually the lamb who's breaking the seal, and so Jesus is not breaking the seal and then riding down on the horse either. So it kind of breaks the continuity of that. Instead, it probably would be best to see him as a heavenly representative sent forth into this world until the end of the age, that is when Jesus finally does come on that white horse, to keep conquering people's hearts for the Lord through, the, through repentance and faith in the lamb who opened the seal. Now, this is something that we do see in Revelation. We do see opportunities for the gospel to be responded to throughout Revelation. In fact, Revelation 14, 6, it says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. So the gospel is still being spread during the trumpet um, judgments that we see. So perhaps this seal is describing something very similar. Because even in judgment and wrath, this is a principle we find all throughout the Bible in wrath, God remembers and reveals mercy, doesn't he? And that's one of the reasons why there are many who look at, this, look at it this way. Uh, this view is summarized by George Eldon Ladd. I think I put this on your lesson guide. The writer is not Christ himself, but symbolizes the proclamation of the gospel of Christ in all the world. However, even though seeing the first seal in a positive light is appealing, and a lot of the symbols kind of point in that direction, 
Because of all the negative things that we find in the next three seals, this is probably one of the reasons why a lot of people want to gravitate toward this view. I do think it's better to see the four horses, again, all four horses, one of those keys that we looked at, all four horses and their horsemen in light of the four horses found in Zechariah. They function together to fulfill their one purpose, which is judgment for those who are God's enemies and God's people's enemies. And so even though the horse and his rider appears to be a positive force, it's only apparent. It only seems that way. In fact, most interpreters consider this first horse and rider to be a negative force because of those reasons. But again, what kind of negative force is it? Um, there are some who think that this refers to the conquering of men. That, um, you know, especially those th that think that this happened already in the time of the Roman Empire, where the Parthians were about to invade, and they were thinking that this was the conquering of men, their lust of conquest. And there certainly is truth to that. I think this is something that God wanted John to share with the people that he's writing to. They could see this on the horizon even in their own day and age. Perhaps it's better to see this horse and rider as representing not Satan, just like we don't see Jesus on it, not representing or not Satan himself or not even an Antichrist himself, but rather the force of the Antichrist, the anti-Christian spirit that already exists and will persist in this world until Jesus actually returns. First John 2.18, John even says, you know, you've heard that Antichrist shall come. We do believe that. But even now, there are many Antichrists. So here's the spirit of Antichrist being granted permission to come and do his conquering work. So then, so then why are all these positive reflections? You know, the, the white and the, the bow and, and all of these things. Well, when you think of Antichrist, the first thing that comes into our mind is usually someone who is blatantly opposed to Christ. We think of the devil with his, his red suit and with his horns and his pitchfork, and we think that is Antichrist. That is Antichrist. You're going to see it. You're going to know it. You're going to hear it. But... Anti doesn't just mean opposed, it just means the attempt to be another Christ. So, a counterfeit. You know, I, I working at the bank, I dealt with a lot of counterfeit money. I mean, not a lot, thank goodness. But some counterfeit money. And there were some counterfeits that were blatant, you know? I mean, if, they, if they're not greenbacks, they're fake. You know, you gotta have, if they're all, you know, okay, so that's, but, but then it's the ones that were subtle, the ones that were counterfeit, the ones that they tried to do their best to make it look real. Those were the ones, that, ones you had to be careful of. And so this anti-Christian force may try to take on positive, attractive features as Christ in order to deceive and bring people into submission, like using a bow with no arrows. Like using a bow with no arrows. Uh, John Walvoord says this could be a picture of a symbolic or is symbolic of distant but bloodless victory, bloodless conquering. So the conquering would not necessarily need to refer to physical coercion or oppression, because it didn't for the churches, right? He who overcomes, I will give. Does that mean that we go out there with our swords and our spears and our bows and our arrows? No, we're faithful. We're faithful. So there's a spiritual overcoming, and it certainly could be that way here. Even in subtle ways, this warrior of evil is given permission from heaven to have his way over many. But who's still in control? The Lord. Absolutely. Don't forget, he's still in control. And that's what we're going to see again and again in the next three seals. So 
I personally believe that this first one is the anti-Christian spirit and anti-Christian force that is going to be unleashed, and certainly we see present even today, um, that is going to wreak havoc in the hearts of men, deceiving and, and wooing people to keep following after the devil and not after Christ. So uh, we do have maybe a couple minutes for any questions about this first um, horse and horseman, and then we'll rapidly go through hopefully second, third, and fourth next Sunday.